So hello and welcome. Happy Friday. Today is Friday, March the 1st, and this is Backyard Beekeeping Questions and Answers, episode number 247. I'm Frederick Dunn, and this is The Way to Be. So I'm really glad that you're here with me today. It's been a really weird week with weather dynamics and everything else. If you want to know what we're going to talk about, please look down in the video description and you'll see all the topics listed and some relevant links that you're probably going to want to follow up on this week. So uh, what's going on outside? 45 degrees Fahrenheit right now. The bees are all over the pollen sub, by the way. So it's a good sunny Friday for us here. Six mile per hour winds, pretty consistent. 43% relative humidity. And uh, of course, we have the dry pollen substitute out because it's sunny and clear. Clouds are coming in later, so no big deal. And the opening sequence was a time lapse shot during this past week. And uh, the bees, sunrise to sunset, clearing up dry pollen substitute. Which one do we use? Well, I'm using up the AP23, which was the top performing one according to scientific studies. And uh, then, of course, we'll be getting rid of the Ultra Bee Dry Pollen Sub, which is from Man Lake. And we're also going to clear up the Mega Bee, which comes from Better Bee. So it's a great opportunity to get rid of that. Uh, with the weird weather dynamics, some of the stuff that happened this week, like, for example, it was 62 degrees Fahrenheit. So we set a local one-day record here at 62. But then within an hour and a half, it dropped to 29 degrees Fahrenheit. And that's how ridiculous the dynamics are right now. So the changes are rapid and weird. And we have a lot of problems going on right now. The great state of Texas here in the United States has a forest fire raging down there. So if you haven't been watching the news, uh, yeah, more than a million acres consumed or actively being burned. Guess what? Less than 3% or right around 3% contained. That's not good. It's in the Panhandle region. And they're calling one area the Smokehouse Creek Fire, and it's the largest recorded in the history of the state of Texas. So I don't know what's going to go on afterwards, but right now that's ongoing. More than 2,000 square miles are scorched, destroying livestock, crops, and wildlife. And there have been some fatalities, too, for the residents of Texas. So it's a big deal. 98% of the Jean Howe Wildlife Management Area, 98% has been burned. That's 5,394 acres. Anyway, one of the things I want you to know is sometimes when we hear about disasters and things like that, I did reach out to some friends that I have down in Texas wanting to know what might be going on with their bee yards and things like that, but it looks pretty bad in that area. And the Amarillo National Bank started a panhandle disaster relief fund. So if you want to Google that, the Amarillo National Bank Panhandle Disaster Relief Fund, you can check into finding out how you might contribute to help those who uh, are impacted by the fires. So it's a big deal. Also, if you have uh, a question that you'd like to submit or a topic that you'd like to recommend that we discuss on a Friday, please go to thewaytobe.org and click on the page mark, The Way to Be, fill out the form and submit your topic. And maybe we'll be talking about that one of these Fridays. So the other thing is, if you're watching this late and you've got a question that you need to have answered right away, there's a social group online called The Way to Be Fellowship. It's on Facebook. So if you pop in there, 
Click to join the fellowship, and unless you're some kind of hater, chances are you're going to be in. And they'll be glad to have you there, regardless of your level of experience, from very beginners to some very advanced beekeepers, all topics, all levels are welcome. So what else can we talk about? I think that's about it for now. Let's jump right in with the first question, which comes from Sean, Elkton, Oregon. Says, good day, Fred. I read somewhere that high fructose honey crystallizes slowly and high glucose honey crystallizes quicker. I've been looking online to see what plants and uh, what plants are high in one or low with the others and no definitive luck. I know there is no control in what the bees bring in, but it would be interesting to know if possible. But judging our honey and what plant varieties the bees are predominantly getting their nectar from. So that's a tough one. It really is. And, and the reason is, you know, they're gathering sucrose and then they have an enzyme in their bodies called invertase and it creates invert sugars. That's where you get the glucose and fructose from. And that does pop up quite a bit that one will, you know, crystallize, the other doesn't and so on. Sometimes you see a jar of honey, half liquid, half crystallized, and it kind of stays that way. So it doesn't really homogenize. But the thing is, uh, when we look at the environment or we think, wow, I really want the plants that won't crystallize. Well, you know what? That changes. Like where I live throughout different times of the year, uh, different plant varieties are out, different nectar sources are available, and the crystallizing honey usually comes at the end of the year, and that's usually our asters and our goldenrod and things like that. So it's not something that's really under your control. I can understand where sometimes people fixate on that because somebody makes a statement. Hey, if you get this one, it won't crystallize. If you get this one, you're due for a lot of crystallization. So as you mentioned, it's not under your control because our bees can forage three miles in every direction. Most of their foraging happens a lot closer to home than that, but that's the extent of kind of their travel distance on a practical level. They zip out, they get resources, and they come back. Uh, unless you have some kind of control over large plots of land in areas where you can plant specifically hoping to get one or the other, but I would suggest that you look more into how much value do those plants have for pollinators overall, not specifically the kind of nectar that they're producing, but rather how much nectar they're producing. And I'm going to recommend a book right now. Most of the sources when you're researching plant nectar quality and things like that, the amount of sugar, some plants produce nectar that's up to 50% sugar. And so that's sucrose, right? But on the other hand, that very same plant early in the morning after a night of rain and so forth might have only a 10 or 15%. So even the content and the percentage of sweetness changes throughout the day. So it's really interesting. The same variety of plant uh, might be producing one thing in uh, the Midwest and it might be very productive in the Northeast. The exact same plant species, depending on its climate, environment, and environmental conditions, rain, no rain, and everything else, impacts the sugar content of the plant. That's why there's no solid data about it. I highly recommend that you go to the Xerxes Society and look at nectar producing plants, pollen producing plants, plants that benefit pollinators of all species. So you're a much better friend of the environment if you're planting for all pollinators, not just your honeybees. But they do have a book called the Top 100 Pollinator Plants, right? And they list the species of animals that benefit from those plants and whether or not it's, they grade it, you know, really good and so on, right down to little benefit. 
So I would pay attention to um, overall plants that provide for pollinators and not really, I mean, I'm not going to tell you not to fixate on it because I understand we're human. We want to know things sometimes just because we want to know them. But I also have no luck finding out that specific breakdown, only that some produce more quantities of nectar than others and at different times of the day, different seasons of the year, these things are widely variable. So if you have some control over planting somewhere, I highly recommend that you look into uh, the best pollinator plants. And the Xerxes Society seems to kind of have the market cornered on the research that's ongoing there. Question number two comes from Lance in Santa Clara, Utah. Lance, by the way, these little bees back here, he's the author of a book called Five Busy Bees. It's a children's book. Look it up. It's pretty cool. I recently um, purchased land for my dream apiary right next to some very expensive horses. I don't know any horses that are cheap, but these are expensive horses. So if the horses choose, they can stand as close as 30 feet from my hives. Didn't realize it, but after working with my bees, the bees go after those horses like crazy. The owner of the horses said he has heard of a bee fence, which causes the bees to go over the fence, which apparently is higher than the horses. And the bees ignore the horses. I cannot find anything about this. Have you ever heard about anything or to do anything like this? Suggestions. I wonder how tall these horses are. Didn't say, are they Clydesdales? Are they Percherons? Those are my favorites. I like, I want to ride a Percheron and chop pumpkins from the top of fence posts and run up and down the field, but I don't have one. Anyway, the thing is, um, I think the fence, the bee fence that we're talking about, the horse fence, and there, there's some truth to this, and here's why. If you've ever walked out, you know, so long as you're on the other side of a building from where your beehives are, as I am right here right now, when you walk out in line of sight of your bees, that's when you'll pick up the one, you know, there's a million bees out there in the apiary and one or two of them come after you just because you walked into the apiary yard. And it's when they see you, they zip right after you. And there's a lot of discussion about, do they go after the tallest person? Do they go after the people with the highest contrast? So the color of these horses might even play. So because uh, our son is six feet two or six three or something like that, and he has really dark hair and he walks into the BR, gets stung right away, and I just walk by. I don't know what happened to him, what goes on. But it's the minute they see him, see? So it's after he walks around the building and gets a look at the bees, that's when he picks up the guards. So if you can put up a fence and there's no specific labeled bee fence, but stockade fences block your line of view. They're also very good at, of course, blocking winds and rough weather and things like that, snowstorms. So, but there's, by the way, a formula for figuring out the height of a fence based on how far away from the fence, downwind of it, there will be a big berm of snow that builds up, right? So it's very interesting and it has to do with the height of the fence. So there's a lot to check out here, but if all we're trying to do is block the line of sight from your bees to the horses, if they're closer to the beehives, the fence doesn't have to be that tall to block that view. If the fence is farther away, then it would have to be, as described, up to the height of the horse themselves. So we can't have their heads like looking over the fence. And if the bees don't see the horses right there, it's true. They don't react the same. They fly up and over the fence and they're on foraging duty. 
Remember, it's the guards that go after the horses and other farm animals. We've had fainting goats, right? Imagine a fainting goat getting stung by a bee and it faints and falls over. It can't run away anymore. It's just there, fainted, falling over. And it's not a real faint, by the way. They suffer from muscle myotonia, which means all their muscles go stiff. I've had fainting goats fall over and just keep eating grass, just like nothing else was going on. They fall over when they're happy. They fall over when they're startled. They fall over for all kinds of reasons. But you can't have them next to beehives because if they get stung by a bee, they'd fall over. They also can't have an electric fence because if a fence shocked them and scared them and they tipped and fell over and fell against the fence, they'd just lay there being shocked. Do you see what's going on? So fences have to kind of suit the situation. Stockade fences are good. Anything that blocks visual contact between the horse and your bees. I hope the horses aren't upwind because the smell of a sweaty horse. This just came to me right now while I'm talking. Langstroth, in his studies, wrote, Do not attend to your hives when you have been riding your horse. In other words, if your horse is sweaty, don't bring it near your bees. So the perspiration of the horse apparently was not good. We don't think about that today because a lot of people are tooling around in golf carts and things like that. And uh, so getting the horse out of the line of sight, it's the movement, the smell, probably the combination, even the colors, I don't know, but you can block it with a stockade fence. It would not be a bee fence. Anything that blocks their field of view, I think I've pretty much covered that. If somebody does know of a specific bee fence, please put that down in the comment section. If you try to submit a link in a comment below a YouTube video, you'll see the link does not post. That's because they're automatically held and I do my best to get to them quickly and release them. So feel free to put a link if you know of a really good bee fence. But there again, closer it can be shorter, closer to the animal, it must be the height of the animal, and so on. Question number three comes from Shelley from Andover, New Jersey. I got a grow tent. Eight by eight. I put it together in my barn. Here's in there. Couldn't get the temp above over 82. I had it running for a week with two heaters. Did not liquefy my crystallized honey in the frames. On the Beater Bee site, they had a Honey Super Warmer. Not cheap. Made, my, made by Lyson. I bought it. Had two supers on it. Let's see, with maybe 10 frames total, it says, I thought more space would let the heat get better access. Well, I've not found the sweet spot for the temperature. Had it at 90. No good. Bumped it up by 5 degrees till I got to 110. At that point, the wax got very soft. There were several frames that were foundationless. That's key, by the way. And they just dropped over and made a mess. Took them out, of course, and made cut comb and stuck them in the freezer. Set the temp down to about 105, and some of the honey was liquefying, but not enough. And again, this was uh, getting too soft. And so I pulled a few frames, scraped them off, put them in the extractor. Some of the honey spun out, but the frames were still very heavy. What a mess. So I gave up. Now I have open comb on some frames with messy honey and had to clean my extractor on a semi-warm day just not working out for me. Guess I will just use the frames for the bees. I did not get this goldenrod honey off early enough and paid a big price for the trials. Just giving you an update. Okay, so we just pass on that update to everybody else who's listening. And the reason is uh, because I did put the word out that you can take uh, honey that's in the cells on the frame. If it's crystallized that way, you can warm it up. And it does take a lot of time, by the way. 
But the interesting part of this, one is, okay, first of all, these grow tents, and I've also recommended those, so I have to own up to it. Uh, the Vivo Sun tents, they're not really thermal. It's a, it's a barrier. And so I have to explain that where I keep mine is in the basement. So in the basement, even in the dead of winter with no heat, it's like 55 degrees, right? So that means there's also no moving air down there. And when you turn on a moderate heater, just the containment, just that draping of the Vivo Sun grow tent, it is aluminized, so it has a reflective surfaces all over the interior, and that's because it's designed for growing plants, not for heating up your honey, right? But because it's in the basement, you know, I get it up to the high 90s and low 100s pretty easy, and with passive heat just from the dehumidifier and things like that, and fans to blow it around. Because remember, we want the air to move because we want it to be equal temperatures throughout the height. We don't want any stratification where the upper box, for example, might be at 112 or something and the lower box still be at 89 or 90. If you had just static air, that could be the condition. But out in the barn or whatever, you have a more challenging situation. So a couple of things come to mind. I've often thought, you know, if you're committed to processing honey and having honey and, and doing this in the future and you've got a barn already, I would give serious thought to creating a room in the barn that is heavily insulated. I'm talking R30 on top. And uh, the sidewalls, just as thick and insulated as you can make them and have an insulated door on it. Because here's the thing. The energy is expended getting these things up to temperature. And once they are that way, the interior of that space is going to be very easy. If it's well insulated, it's going to be very easy to retain the heat that you have established there. It only costs you money every time somebody opens the door and a gust of wind blows in there. So you can put the R factor as high as you want. And don't forget to insulate the floor too. So there's insulated mats and things like that. You can use double bubble underneath indoor outdoor carpet. You can do a lot of things, right? But uh, so insulation is going to be really good. I think Michael Palmer has a hot room that's like at 98 degrees and they keep it there for a long time. And that would crystal or decrystallize your honey even in the frames. Now, the second part of this that's very important for the beginners that might be buying equipment right now. Here's one of the reasons you want to think about the kind of foundation you have in your frames or if you're going to go foundationless. Now, I use some shallow and some medium frames with foundationless frames in them. Why do I do that? Because we might want to cut the wax out and have cut comb, right? So if you're not going to have cut comb, then they make a plastic foundation that goes in. This just happens to be white. It's got the little corners cut. But this, for example, if it were all drawn out and there were honey in there and it were crystallized or set, as they say, and you put this in a warming room, it's not going to sag or come away. If it is foundationless, in other words, if there's nothing in here, it is just the comb that is built up usually really tight to the top bar underneath and they'll attach to the sides here. They will not attach to the bottom, which means that often they're not supported by the bottom so that's the reason also why they can sag if this is leaning at all it can also swing out and you can even have problems with your foundationless frames in the top of a hive on a hot summer day inside the beehive it can sag and slump so i'm going to recommend for brand new beekeepers that are just starting out that you have some kind of foundation inside your frames and that's just because rough handling and things like that here's an example 
this is a foundationless frame and look at the remnants on it. That's because we use it for cut comb and we leave these wax remnants on here because it helps the bees build out from it even quicker next year. Well, next year, it's this year. So in the spring, this is part of a shallow super. And let's make that comparison, right? Shallow and medium. See the difference? Not a huge difference, but this cuts out perfectly for cut comb. So if it were at the end of the year, instead of going into storage or leaving it somewhere where it can crystallize, I recommend cutting the comb right away. And as mentioned here, we put our cut comb right in the fridge. Now, once it's solidified, freezing it doesn't help. It's not going to liquefy it. All freezing does is help stop it from undergoing any future change, right? So that's it for that one. Question number three. Question number four comes in from Keith. Listen to this town, Yadkinville, North Carolina. Hello, Fred had an odd one today, helping a friend with his hives and found the following. He was, uh, hive was a 10 frame deep with a shallow on top. Lots of bees, food, but the shallow was full of bullets and looked like a classic laying worker pattern. Popped off the shallow and checked the deep and found nice full patterns of normal brood with eggs, larvae, any idea what might be going on here. Never had this before. Didn't do anything since there was a queen present was laying. Maybe pull the shallow and put on a strong hive for cleanup? Question mark. Any thoughts? So based on the description, I think this is the configuration that we had. A deep and a shallow on top. Didn't mention, by the way, Keith, if there was a queen excluder, what the rest of the configuration is or anything else, but here's the thing. It really doesn't matter. And when it says bullets, some people are sitting there thinking probably, what are bullets? Bullets are, though it's not described in the question, uh, often when you have a laying worker situation, laying workers can only produce drones and sometimes they'll lay their eggs right in worker sized cells. And when that happens, the drone is larger than a normal worker. And so they have to have a convex cap so that looks like a little bullet and we call them bullet cells and uh, so they stick out really proud and it's very distinctive that now you have a worker cell that has a drone in it because the workers their cappings would be slightly convex just barely and they wouldn't be bullet like so here's my advice it's probably too late anyway because this question is already posted on the 28th um I wouldn't worry about it at all. I just let the drones emerge and let them do what they're gonna do and they come out and then they can easily reuse that. Because here's my configuration and I don't know if they're doing the same where Keith is, but the deep brood box is just for the bees always. So that first box on any hive is always just for the bees. The second box also just for the bees. I'm never gonna use it. So I don't care that it was used for brood, right? Because brood, frames, brood cells, get really fibrous and difficult to work with over time. But if the bees are producing resources just for themselves, like after these drones emerge, they're just going to use those brood cells up above for honey storage, nectar storage. So I would just let them emerge and do their thing. Now, if you want to clean them up early, if you're impatient, you don't want a bunch of drones running around yet. Uh, if you've got chickens, you're in a perfect world, but you have to teach your chickens that those are resources they can eat. You can't just take a frame of brood out. And by the way, 
I've mentioned this to people before, but don't let the chickens see you coming. In other words, if your chickens are in the coop, let them stay in there, keep all the doors closed. Go out to a routine feeding station for your chickens, a place that you're always going to provide some resource for them because then early in the morning when you let your chickens out or the automatic hen door opens or whatever happens, they're gonna to run to that spot and check it first. So if you can lay that on its side and sprinkle a bunch of chicken feed on that frame, dig up, take a fork and dig out a couple of, you don't have to dig them all out because we'd like to teach the chickens to open these cells themselves for future use, right? So we're training our chickens because they're going to be eating pupa and they're also going to be eating any varroa destructor mites that might also be inside those frames. So if we can just take your uncapping fork and scratch a couple of caps off and sprinkle chicken feed all over it. And the reason I say don't let your chicken see you do it is because then every time they see in the bee yard, every time you pick up a frame, and then I'm speaking hypothetically, I'm not speaking from experience, your chickens will come running straight at you thinking that all these frames are for them. So put it out there, let the chickens think they discovered it, leaning on your garden fence or wherever it goes or right against the chicken coop. And then they'll learn to check there and then you can cycle out and turn into chicken feed any drones that you want to have the cells cleaned out and the drones cleaned out because they're also gonna tear it up pretty good. That's okay. And then just put it right back. You don't have to do anything else after that. When the chickens are done with it, put it right back on your hive and you're probably gonna be good to go. But it's not a concern. It's a weird situation, like you said, because there's a laying queen. If you think it's a laying worker, the pattern wasn't very well described. So is it consistent? Was it a solid you know, frame? Were there several frames of brood? There's a lot of information missing. We're going to go on to question number five. Patricia from West Haven, Utah. I ordered some medium boxes for honey supers and didn't realize that they came with black foundation. Does it matter? If honey super frames are black or yellow, I can't imagine it would be, but just wondered what your thoughts were on it. So when we're talking about foundation, and let's face it, there's a lot of competition out there for plastic foundation inside your beehives. There are a lot of different foundation types. There's Better Comb from Better Bee. That's a foundation. There's the plastic, the white one that I just showed. and there are complete plastic frames. This one happens to be from the Acorn Company. Now it's true in the brood area particularly, right? Because we're talking about mediums here for supers. So when it's up for a honey super, what difference does the color make? It, it really doesn't. If you're using these frames for brood areas, it makes a big difference in your ability because it creates a contrast, your ability to spot, the uh, larvae that are in there, particularly young larvae, and those little tiny eggs from your queen that she's laying in there. So when you do that, the black foundation just makes spotting them very easy. If this were a white foundation, like this one right here, then you can imagine that spotting you know, eggs and young larvae is gonna be very difficult. But it's up in the honey super, so it really doesn't matter. So then what does matter though? I want to talk to you a little bit about that because there's something I want you to notice here too. See how thin the top bar is on this, on this frame? The bottom bar too is very thin. See that? That means you get more cells, more cap cells, more cells filled with honey per frame 
than if you had a wooden one. Because you see the top bar on the wooden one here, how thick that is, top bar on the bottom. Make a comparison here. So this is of course a medium and this is a shallow, but you do lose a couple of hundred cells on each side if you went with wood over plastic and so on. Now some people just love wood and that's fine. I'm just telling you the differences. So you can actually get more honey per frame on a one piece plastic by Acorn. But the part here that's going to be really important if you listen to nothing else regarding frames, if you're going to get a plastic foundation, get it from a really good company for starters. The second part is you want the heaviest beeswax coating on that plastic foundation that you can get. Heavier is better. If they're offering if they're offering heavy dip, sometimes they'll say, or double dip, triple dip. Acorn offers triple dipped. If you get triple dipped, there is a noted difference. A single coating of wax compared to a heavy coating of beeswax on a plastic foundation. The heavy beeswax foundation will be drawn probably twice as fast. I can't say with great absolution because I don't sit out there and measure it. I don't have time-lapse sequences. I do know though, that especially when the frames are brand new. Now once they've been used a couple times, they draw them out really fast because you've left those resources on there. And they do reuse beeswax, by the way. The cap wax is mostly new wax. That's why the cap wax is so sought after for candles and medicinals and lip balm and things like that. Because it's brand new and the bees just made it. But they do glom on regular beeswax and reconstitute it and reshape it and reuse it. But if you have provided brand new frames, like you put a whole new super on, you're a new beekeeper, and you've got a bunch of these pristine, brand new medium frames up there, and you just expect your bees to go gangbusters after it, they will, if it's heavy waxed foundation. They will eventually, if it has a minimal wax coating. If you put plastic frames out there, I got some years ago, and I put them up there, I thought the bees would just wax them up. They have the potential. They certainly could. But you know what they did? They started a second row right next to the foundation. And they didn't build on to the uncoated plastic foundation at all. They built a frame right next to it and just hung it off of that top bar edge. And that's annoying because what do we want them to do? We want them to work the frames the way we give it to them so we can use bee space. That's the other thing too, while we're talking about frames, I'm gonna highly recommend you push all your frames together, all of them. They're built, uh, they're designed around bee space. When we look at them from the top and they have these little shoulders that go together like that, that guarantees the spacing. See that little shoulder? Push them right together and this cuts down on the wonky comb, this cuts down on the burr comb that they might build out, and it cuts down on their desire or propensity to build a second um, kind of loaf of comb. Leaf, loaf, whatever you want to call it, comb where you don't want it. And uh, so keep them all together. Now later, if you want them to draw it, because sometimes you'll see, and I might as well bring it up now, uh, you'll hear people recommend only 9 frames in a 10 frame box and things like that. Uh, when you do that, you need to leave room so that when you're inspecting your hive, you can pull your frame off to the side and then lift it up so that we're not rolling the bees between the frames because they'll develop surfaces that match one another, 
but they can be contoured so that when you pull that frame up, they scrape. And if there are any bees on that surface, heaven forbid your queen, you potentially roll the queen. The advantage of moving your frames farther apart as time passes. So in other words, once they draw it out and they establish your bee space, if you want to start to spread them apart a little bit as you go, then they can draw deeper frames. And that means now the comb stands proud from the face of that frame, from that foundation. And then when you go to cut it off for processing, that's when you're going to even it up and it makes it much easier to uncap. And then frame by frame, of course, you get more honey per frame. Uh, I don't do that. So mine are at 10. If it's a 10 frame hive, it has 10 frames in it. If it's an eight frame box, it has eight frames in it. And I push them all together. And then as I do my inspections, I pull them to the side and then I lift them. So pull the first one over, lift the second one and start your inspection process. So lots of ways to do it. I'm just giving you food for thought. And that's the end of question number five. Question number six comes from John from Washington State. That's all it says, no city. Are you doing any kind of research uh, during the eclipse on April 8th? The northwest corner of Pennsylvania will experience a total eclipse and the rest of the state will experience a partial eclipse. That's right, I am in the path of totality as they call it. So, and this is, I just happen to pick John's as the one to print out, but several people sent in a similar question. So I'm going to talk about this a little bit. I'm not going to get into a bunch of camera settings and things like that. Uh, there are lots of websites that are great for that. And I'm going to recommend one when I'm done talking about the rest of it. So the path of totality, I am in it. Now, heaven forbid, right? April 8th shows up and we get an overcast day or it's rainy and stuff like that because where I live, every motel room is booked. They are talking about it daily on the news. They're talking about traffic situations and the number of people that are going to be flocking to this corridor of totality. Cleveland is in the path of, you know, the total eclipse, right? And it's a big deal. I don't want to pretend that it isn't because apparently a lot of people who have experienced a total eclipse of the sun uh, are moved and changed and other people sent me emails about other things that are going to happen at that time which I find very interesting but I'm just going to glaze over those about you know secret things coming from space at that time I don't want to start any conspiracy theories so we're just going to talk scientifically about what's going on so in the path of totality what am I going to do all right I'm going to put out several cameras why because it's a one-time event right we're going to put cameras out to see what the bees are going to do. Because that's the other thing. What are the bees going to do? What, what happens to bees when it suddenly gets dark? Because remember, the eclipse doesn't take very long. It's going to happen and it's going to be over with. And your bees, we know, can't see very well. They don't navigate by sight very well when it's dark. So when it gets dark, I think they're just going to be grounded. However, what am I going to do about it? Well, I'm going to put cameras out, lots of them. I'm going to have cameras on landing boards. I'm going to have cameras on foraging spots. I'm going to have cameras everywhere. And I'm going to video what's going to happen, including, yes, I'm going to video the sun and I'm going to video the eclipse. Because why not? You know, here's the thing. You know, I have a friend that shoots for, you know, the space industry and his camera equipment and his ability to photograph everything is so far beyond what I can do that it's almost a waste of time for us to do it. But here's the thing. Might as well do it. If you've got a camera and you're ready to go, I just have some things to talk about. First of all, I want to talk about your safety. These are glasses designed for the eclipse. Here's the problem. 
there's lots of people that are selling glasses that are good for a solar eclipse. Your glasses need to be safe enough for you to look at the sun because during the eclipse itself, it's not apparently a risk to your eyes. But before the eclipse happens and right after, it is. So where do you find out? I'm going to tell you. American Astronomical Society. Go there and find out which of these are safe for your eyes. I would not be out there staring at the sun at anything I just grabbed off of Etsy or eBay. And no, you cannot take your number six brazing goggles out there and stare at the sun. Don't even think about it. So there are other parts of this too. Safety glasses, so that's it. Here's the thing, what about your camera equipment? Do not point your cameras at the sun. Do not. You can damage the sensor on your camera. So you have to have, there are ND filters. There are called neutral density filters, but there are solar filters and they're a big deal. And I'm just gonna show you. This is the solar filter that I'm going to be using and it is a filter designed specifically for my lens. It is a 95 millimeter filter that goes on your camera lens. And that's because I'm using a 400 millimeter lens to shoot it. I'm also gonna take my best camera body and I'm gonna attach it to that 400 millimeter lens and it's a mirrorless camera. Why does that matter? It matters because the only image I'm gonna be looking at on that camera is on the back of it on the screen because that's an electronic image. In other words, I will never be looking through something like an SLR, which is a single lens reflex where the mirror flips up and you're looking right through your lens without your filter at the sun, never do it. So the filter needs to be on before you're even looking at the sun through it and getting everything all set up. So that's part of what I'm doing. I'm using a solar filter and that thing costs fat stacks. So here's the thing watch it just be overcast and it's only good for looking at the sun but the good news is it's good for photographing the sun at any time so let's go on what else are we talking about look only through your electronic viewfinder do not look directly at the sun also i recommend that you get a remote trigger because that's what i'm going to have i'm going to get my heaviest tripod because i want no movement and I don't want to touch it. So I have a couple options. One is because I want to shoot a bunch of uh, bracketed shots, three up, three down. So three stops lighter, three stops darker than what I consider to be the perfect setting. And some of you are sitting there going, what's the perfect setting? And I'm going to say, go to B&H Photo and check out their entire guide on how to photograph the sun. And then they also have a video on how to photograph the eclipse. But if you know how to photograph the sun, you're going to know how to photograph the eclipse. So they go hand in hand, right? So the remote trigger, because that keeps the camera from jiggling, because if you're up there pushing the shutter, then you're going to move the camera a little bit, even on a really good tripod. The other part is you could set the timer. And then once you set the timer to go off in five seconds or 10 seconds, it's whatever amount of time it takes the thing to stop shaking after you've touched it. So then the timer will click the shutter for you and that allows you to shoot at a slow speed, right? The other thing is, if you have settings in your camera, by the way, do not use any auto settings, use manual. Go to the websites, find out what will work best, what the settings are, the ISO, the shutter speed, the f-stop, everything else, set everything up and play with it. Before the solar eclipse shows up, learn to shoot the sun. Because here's the cool thing that's going to happen during that solar eclipse, 
by the way, you're going to see stars and everything. It is a cool opportunity. I'm not going to lie. I was thinking of a, a larger lens, right? But 400 millimeters is enough. And of course, that front element is large. The other thing is, don't use doublers. Sometimes people go shopping, you've got an inexpensive camera, inexpensive lens, and you find out that your 200 millimeter lens could be a 400 millimeter lens, a 400 millimeter lens if you use a doubler. Doublers are crap. Let me just tell you right now, I'm on my photographer's soapbox. If you're buying a doubler for something really critical that you want as much detail as you can possibly get, you're going to see degradation of the image. Nothing is going to be better than your camera and a single lens attached to the camera. The more things you put between the lens and the camera, trying to improve magnification or whatever, it's going to degrade your image. Don't do it. So no doublers. The other thing is, don't shoot JPEG, shoot RAW. Raw images collect all of the data. That is your full dynamic range and you can bring in the highlights, you can bring up the shadows a little bit, you have a lot more control. Not only that, the raw image serves as your digital negative. There's something about JPEG. Every time you open and save the JPEG, we used to call it lossy, and that's because it degrades the image digitally. Every time you open and resave the same image, if it's a JPEG format, it degrades. If you're using a raw image, the raw format, which for you know Nikon, it would be the NEF format, format right? All of the data is preserved and it's non-destructive. In other words, when you open it, edit it, the next thing you save is a TIFF or a JPEG or something like that. And when you do that, you've created a new image. The raw data stays untouched. Very smart, very good, do it. So you're gonna get one chance at this. You're gonna bracket your shots, three up, three down. Like I said, use your mirrorless to see the shot or an electronic viewfinder, don't look straight at the sun. And already said, and get your heaviest uh, tripod that you can get. You can even hang weights on them. Some of them have a hook in the middle. So ankle weights are really good, by the way. So uh, turn your stabilization off if you have that in your camera. And I'm sure all these tutorials will cover all of that. Practice, take shots of the sun because you're already going to get that solar filter. In my case, this is the one in case somebody might look to see exactly which one I'm using. That's it. It's a Nisi filter. And uh, if it's a piece of cellophane or something like that, don't even do it. Try not to stack filters because every filter you stack is another layer of glass, is another degradation of your image. The fewer layers of glass that you have, the better it's going to be. You want as few things between the source that you're shooting and the sensor that you're trying to land that image on as possible. So, and follow the link. If you can't find it at BNH Photo and look up uh, the tutorial on photographing the sun, and they even have another one on just the eclipse, but the sun will be the most critical one for you. Uh, if you can't find it, look down in the video description and you'll find that link there. Lots of good stuff. And also, if you don't have one, that's where you can find uh, that same website, Adorama, B&H Photo. Those are both big camera companies that sell all the gear. Uh, you can also find the filters that you need specific to your camera right there. And I said they cause fat stacks. You know, it's it's a couple hundred dollars, you know, but just for one event that everybody else is already going to photograph out the wazoo and that everybody's going to be sharing their sweet pictures on social media and the best ones are going to be taken with people's cell phones, which I highly recommend you do not do, but you can't tell people stuff. 
All right, so we're going to move on now to question number seven. I've been watching your videos and try to follow you weekly. Could you please tell me which heat camera you use as a tool to monitor the movement of the cluster during winter? I realize the camera is also great to locate other heat issues within the hive. I'm thinking of getting together with my bee buddies and buying one to share. Thank you. So the opening thumbnail for today is my thermal cameras, right? So this is my old favorite. This is the FLIR C2. Why do I like this camera? First of all, I'm telling you about a camera that's discontinued, which is really annoying to me because it works really well and it records still photos and it records video. And I used to aim another video camera right at the back screen and video it because the format that they generate was not compatible with my video editing software. So that was annoying. But this is the FLIR C2. It still works. And it has two lenses here because it also gives you an outline of whatever you're shooting. And then the second lens gives you the thermal, the infrared, and you choose the color scheme that goes on it. So why am I telling you about one that doesn't work anymore? If you can get a hold of a FLIR C2 for a couple hundred bucks or whatever, these things are great. Look, it goes right in your pocket, has a little lanyard. You could wear it around your neck if you wanted to. And the battery, by the way, is still good. But once this battery dies, it has a connection on here that I can put a power cable on it, run one of those battery packs with me and power it on the go. So this still works. That's the good news. Now, if you're with it and you want to get cool stuff to go on your phone, almost everybody has a smartphone now. This is the latest and greatest kind of prosumer level FLIR and it's the FLIR Pro. So it must be for professionals because it says Pro right on it. It also has the USB-C connection right here and you adjust it. So you turn this little knob here and it pulls it in or pushes it out. Like if you've got a case on your phone or something like that, it goes straight on that. So that's the good news. It plugs into your phone and then your phone records the image. Your screen shows you what's going on and you can also record video. Very disappointed that I recorded video from this thing, which by the way is the best one they make for the phone. And uh, the video format, even though it says it's an MPEG-4, is not compatible with Adobe Premiere editing software. That's very annoying to me. But anyway, these are portable. Look at the little, it comes in a little case like this. You know, you can zip that shut, put that right in there, keep it nice and protected. Again, it would fit right in your pocket. You take it out when you need it. And of course it charges up and the battery life on this thing is really good. And I know what you're thinking. How much does that thing cost? They're expensive. This little gadget right here, it costs more. Well, this brand new was like $400. So it was expensive at the time. This right here sells for $349.99 because I just checked it on Amazon before I came here. But here's what I did not expect. Right now, they're 24% off. So this thing right here is normally $349.99. It is $265.73. And you have it tomorrow. So for those of you that want to do that, I don't know anything about anything else. FLIR is something that it's a company that provides a lot of military stuff too. So thermal imaging, as is mentioned here by, um, it says Giselle. Okay, so that, I don't know if I said the name at the beginning, but Giselle here says they want to get one from their club and then share it. 
The other thing is you can go around your house and see where your insulation isn't good enough. You can see where you've got outlets on your outside walls that might be leaking cold air. You can see if the insulation trim around your doors is failing. So it has a lot of practical uses. The other thing is you can look at circuit panels, circuit boards, and things like that and see where the hot spots are, where a short might be about to happen, where the conductors aren't thick enough to carry the current that's going through them, so they're heating up. Potential fire hazard later. You could save your whole house just because you talked your significant other into buying this for you uh, because you absolutely need it so you know where the cluster is in your beehive. So here's the other cool thing. Uh, this works the same. They work the same. They've got the same little dual lenses there. So one will show and you calibrate it for how far away you are from the source. So if you're a beekeeper, sometimes you'll see that the thermal image is off a little bit and then the outline, if there's where a bee, the outline is down here and the thermal image is up here. You adjust the distance until they overlay one another exactly. So then you can see which bees specifically are heating and which bees are not. So when you're looking at a frame of brood, who are the heater bees? Because I had somebody write me several times that was very convinced that I needed to explain to people that the drone is generating heat for the brood. So I go out of my way to video the drones to see if they're generating body heat to help contribute to the warmth of the mass over the brood, whether it's capped or open larvae, right? And I've not yet found a single drone that was serving as a heater bee yet. I'm not saying they can't. Physically, they're present, so their physical body being present, just like you fill a room with people, they're all gonna warm the room, whatever their body temperature happens to be. But I've not seen a drone yet functioning with thermal scans as a heater bee. While we do see the workers there getting in a cell, warming the six adjacent cells and really cranking out the thermals in there, really working hard. And so it's really interesting to see, also when you're looking at clusters of bees on branches and things like that, you'll see little spots of bees that are keeping things warm and the rest of them that have really gone kind of dormant and allowed their bodies to get really cold. So it is an interesting, fun tool. Is it gonna pay for itself? I don't know. Because remember, in a way, it's just giving us information for information's sake. Now, if you spot a short in your electrical wiring somewhere that could result in a fire, I would say then it paid for itself. But if you're just looking at beehives, you know, it shows you where they are. It's nice to have. It's fun to know. And we know then when the cluster's all the way at the top. And then we know they're consuming, consuming their emergency resources. So it is a lot of fun in that regard. And uh, if you're a business, if your bee business is something, then that's a write-off as a tool. So who knows? But those are the only ones, by the way, that are recommended. I did piles of research on it, but there again, I have to say that I was biased because thermal equipment sold to the military under the Department of Defense. Contracting is usually from FLIR. So they have a lot of military applications out there. So anyway, that's it. They're on sale. They make them for your um, iPhone. They also make it, of course, for Android. So they have one of each. And this is one of the weird situations where the Android version is more expensive than the iPhone version. That's backwards. iPhone people are the ones that are supposed to get ripped off, not the Android people. We're conservative. So anyway, moving on to the fluff. So that was the last question of the day. So we're going to talk about some other things. I'm going to highly recommend, uh, for those of you who are in the Northeastern United States, we're getting a transitional period, right? So 
we are, the dry pollen sub is out there and the bees are all over it. So they're getting it like they're desperate, like they've never seen pollen sub or pollen resources at all and they really need it really bad. So they're flying back and we were walking around looking at the landing boards and we're seeing the pollen is coming in. It's very obvious which ones are in the pollen sub because they're cookie dusted. You know, they look like a powdered donut coming back. And so when they're on the landing board going in, we know that they've been in the pollen sub. And so I expected to see high numbers of the pollen sub bees coming in, but it wasn't. It was like every fourth or fifth bee going into the hive was the cookie dusted pollen sub bee. And others were bringing in pollen on their corbicula. So those are the hind legs that they have with the little indentation in it and the stiff hairs to hold the pollen on their legs. They were bringing in pollen from other sources and it was really cool to see the differences. So that means right now in the environment, there is already pollen available to your bees. So would they starve if we did not put out the pollen sub? No, because they're finding it. So the non-cookie dusted bees are coming in with pollen. So that looked good. And there were more of those than there were coming from the actual pollen substitute. So what I've advised to people that uh, are in my care as uh, bee mentees, right? Which most of them now have several years of experience. Uh, I recommend that you use up your pollen sub right now while you can. And that's because we don't want it to go stale. We want to wait. I'm going to wait until fall and then I'm going to buy replacement pollen sub that will then be fresh. Remember most of it, let's be with the most critical one. It has about two years on the shelf. So if you've got dry pollen substitute, it would be a great opportunity to go ahead and let your bees use that up. And I'm hoping that they do. So the other thing is uh, some of you are pulling off your fondant packs, your Hive Alive fondant packs or whatever else you have, sugar that you put on there. This is a Hive Alive fondant pack. You'll find that it's consumed through the middle, but now we've got these bits. So cut all the edges all the way around, peel it back, and I recommend that you turn that into a sugar syrup mix, right? Because it's not going to be any good anymore. The bees are going to be bringing in their nectar, and they're not going to depend on that. So when we start seeing new nectar coming in, you can go ahead and pull those off and then put your piece of wood or whatever you have to close up that feeder hole on your inner cover. It's time to think about doing that. And when would I do it? So the Northeastern United States, I would be doing it not this coming week, but the week after. So let them go ahead and finish up on it. And because now they're, it's transitional, so they're bringing in nectar and pollen from the environment. So highly likely that's coming from um, maple trees. The other thing that's going on uh, is that people are doing sugar sugaring, it's called, when they take maple sap from maple trees, and then they're condensing that down, of course, into maple syrup. The bees are quick to find any leaks, openings, or when people are, somebody said they nailed a swarm trap onto a tree and they immediately had bees going to the swarm trap, but the bees were not going through the front entrance of the swarm trap. They were all behind it. So what's going on? Well, when you drove the nails into the tree to hang the swarm trap, it's a maple tree and the sap was running and the sap was dripping out the nail holes and running down the face of the bark of the tree. So the bees were after that because bees go after any source of sugar. So I think uh, the bees are exploiting resources that they find. Next part is, so liquefy your hive alive, uh, check expiration on all supplements. So all of your feeder stuff, just do a check and see if it's nearing its expiration date. See if it's something that you can make use of. And if not, uh, you're good to go for storage. So, and again, by the way, when I talk to the hive alive people, don't freeze your stuff. 
cool, dark, storage is good. The freezer, not good. So don't put it in the fridge or the freezer, just in the 50s or whatever. If you've got a root cellar, if you've got a basement or someplace where you can store your Hyvalite fondant, that's the place to go. Do not freeze, he said. And I don't know why. You know, I don't know what happens to it. So clean your entrances. We were just walking around looking at all the entrances, all the bees were flying, everything was fantastic. And I was pointing out what I thought would be a dead out. And it's my Lysen uh, Nucleus Hive. So it's a six frame Nucleus Deep Hive box all by itself, single deep. And there's no activity. None of them were flying. And so I thought, yeah, and this one over here is, it's probably dead. And then, but I realized that if I moved the entrance guard, the mouse guard that's in place on it and scraped out the bees, they started flying right away. So, this is a failure on the part of my supervisor. So, the little beekeeper, Quinn, did not clear the entrances the way he said he did. So, the good news is we saved them on a nice hot day. We scraped out the dead bees and they started flying immediately. They started going after resources immediately. And so I've got a live, single, six-frame, nucleus hive, lysin insulated, that made it so far. If they made it this far, my hopes are pretty high. I think that's gonna work. But, so here's the thing, check all your entrances. You got a pile of dead bees over that entrance, scrape them out, clear it up. Even if you think it's a dead out, don't underestimate them. Things might still go your way. So watch for the dandelion bloom uh, because when you start seeing one or two dandelions wherever you live, uh, that means things are starting up. By the time we see a full field of dandelions, it's almost too late to put a super on. Because remember, your bees are going to be triggered to reproduce as a colony. So if you want to head that off, this is where we start pre-staging our supers. Now, when the weather stays, it's a pretty good indicator too that when the nights start staying above freezing and uh, we get these sunny days like today, it's still a little premature, but I'm looking at second or third week going forward. Because remember, by the time they're building queen cells and things like that, it's too late. They've already decided they're on their way out and they tend to do that right at the same time the dandelions bloom in big numbers. So by the time they've already decided to swarm, it's very difficult to turn that train around. You can of course take the frame that's got the queen on it, isolate her, remove her, create splits and things like that. But those who are trying to keep all of their bees in the same hive will need to expand the colony and make room for them early enough that they'll use the space. And the reason I make the distinction of whether or not it's freezing at night is because we're adding space that now is no longer under the climate control kind of of the bees in there. And we're opening a space above the cluster, which could cause condensation, but the risk of condensation is greatly reduced once we're above freezing at night. So think about getting your stuff expanded, opening up your entrances a little bit if you want to, and that's going to help. Uh, what else? Yeah, so a lot of people are thinking about things to plant. I've talked a lot about hyssop, and today I want to add borge. Uh, we talked about this a little bit because last week somebody asked a question about it. Why wasn't I recommending this stuff? And uh, so that made me look into it. It is a non-native plant, but a non-native plant that produces a lot of nectar and pollen Here's the specs on the back of it. This is good all over the United States. And I bought the quarter pound pack and uh, that's what I'm gonna do. Now it's considered an annual because that was another thing. They didn't say whether it was annual or perennial. So it's an annual, but 
an annual that behaves as a perennial because it's very good at self-seeding. And it also means that when the, you know, the birds visit it and things like that, they might be spreading this around. So I don't know why I was slow in the uptake, which I often am when it comes to things like things to plant. You know, I got excited about hyssop and then now there's blue giant hyssop and there's anise hyssop and agastache and all this other stuff going on, which I'm excited about. Borage grows from 24 to 36 inches tall. And uh, what else does it say? Lavender blue. And let's see, reach about two feet overall. Anyway, bloom with a cucumber-like scent. Borage and it's, and it's edible. So it's a win, win, win across the board. If you can't find it, I'm putting a link to it down in the video description. It will be an Amazon link, so that means it's an affiliate link. If you don't want to click on the affiliate link, you can go ahead and go straight to Amazon or wherever else and do your search. This is made in the USA, and it comes from a website called sweetyards.com. S-W-E-E-T-Y-A-R-D-S. Dot com. But if you use an affiliate link down in the video description of any YouTuber, when you do that, a percentage of the sale for some items on Amazon, not even all of them, some items provide AdSense. It's an affiliate link, so you get maybe a nickel for that sale, which does not cost the buyer any more. So it's a great way to reward your favorite YouTuber for bringing you information about a product that you ultimately decide you need to have. So this stuff will cover a lot. I'm looking forward to it. Now we are starting our seeds inside this coming week. So all of the grow lights are up and ready to go. All the pots are set out and we're just gonna fill each pot with a soil mix. And we're gonna lay the seeds right on top because they are hyssop. And I'm gonna, of course, I think borage could be direct seeded, but I'm gonna start some inside and some outside since I have a quarter pound of it, more than enough seeds where if they get too big too soon, I'm still okay. The, uh, the hyssop plants can go out still when it's pretty darn cool. So once they start, and we have fans on them, by the way, this is something that's really important. I always wondered before, when I looked at people growing plants inside, why do you have a fan on it? Is that to move CO2 across it? Is that to keep the air movement so the plants can breathe better? What is going on with that? But I found out quickly that having fans blowing on them and shifting your fans at different directions and having them in different cycles where they come on and some of the fans are oscillating and so on, this strengthens the plant. It makes the little stems stronger. It prepares your plants for going outside where there is an actual wind when you plant them in your garden or in your pollinator plot or whatever you have. So what it does is keeps your plants really sturdy and weather capable. So that's the big advantage of having fans blowing on your plants while they're developing. They get tougher. You don't get these little mamby-pamby plants that you take out there, a little wind comes over and they flop on their side. That's because you might have grown them in a space with nothing but light, no air movement, and they get little spindly stems. So, grow strong plants, use fans. And the fans are very inexpensive, they're low wattage, and they're worth their weight in gold. So what else do we have? Uh, bonus sequences. So at the end, what you're going to see when we close out today, you have some sweet slow motion sequences shot at a thousand frames per second of bees in flight. But I also want you to see, and I'm going to tell you now what you're going to see. That way, uh, when it's on, I don't have to narrate it, right? So I was walking by my bird cedar, which has black whale sunflower seed in it. No great surprise there. It is the most diverse 
seed for the most species of birds. And I've said before that the honeybees were in it. I was hearing a weird sound. I would, could hear seeds falling on the ground underneath the sun, underneath the bird feeder. What is going on there? And then you look at the bird feeder and little seeds are being pushed out and they're just dropping out. The honeybees are inside the bird feeder trying to roll around again in the sunflower seed dust, which has no pollen in it. And they're pushing the seeds out and they emptied the feeder. This bird feeder holds five or more pounds of sunflower seed and the honeybees went in there and pushed out every single seed trying to get to the dust at the bottom of the bird feeder. That's in the video that you're about to see if you stick around at the end. So that's what's going on there. And I, I want you to hear the sound and just think about how weird honeybees are. They get no benefit. 20 feet from that, there was dry pollen substitute that they could just fly to and get, but no, they go in the bird feeders. They're like a dog in the manger. They're keeping the birds from feeding at the bird feeder and they're kicking out. I've never seen this before. This is the first year. This is my 18th year of keeping bees. This is the first time I have seen honeybees push bird seed out of a bird feeder. So, and then the rest is just fun to watch. Bees flying with pollen sub on them with the wind blowing and it's exciting. So I want to thank you for watching and listening today. Please submit your own questions. Make comments down below. If you want to submit your own question, don't forget, you go to thewaytobe.org, click on the page marked The Way to Be, and you can fill out your own topic. And hopefully, maybe, it'll be something that we talk about one of these Fridays. So thanks a lot. I hope you have a fantastic weekend. And our thoughts are with those that are down in the great state of Texas dealing with an incredible fire situation. Thanks for watching.
Mm-hmm. <laughs>